Last month, I was in a small town called Steinbach, Manitoba, where, do you know Steinbach? So there is such a place, so someone's nodding their head here in the, in, in near the front. And it was a frigid, minus 22 Celsius, minus 36 with the wind chill factor. I, I was there to speak at a conference, and after the conference was done, I was being driven to the airport, the Winnipeg airport, and I was in the back of a Subaru, and I noticed that there were some cables in the hatch area of the Subaru, and so I, I looked to the front and asked my hosts, Jake and Arlene, what are the cables for? And they said, with the snowy conditions here in the winter, and it was snowing hard, and it was, it was windy, it's not unusual for, for cars, for vehicles to slide off into the ditch. And so if we're out driving and we notice that a vehicle is in a ditch, we'll pull over and use the cables to help pull the vehicle out. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's so nice of you. That's so kind of you. And they came back and said, well, it's what we Manitobans do for each other. This is not unusual. And when we hear about or personally experience the kindness of strangers, there's something about that that reassures us that human beings can be and do good. A contrasting example. In the movie Grand Canyon, Danny Glover plays the role of a tow truck driver. He gets a call and he is asked to drive into a dangerous part of LA's inner city. And when he arrives, he, he sees a man by his car, the man happens to be a lawyer, surrounded by a gang. And so Danny Glover looks at the driver, and then he looks at the gang and back at the driver. And he calmly and slowly says, man, maybe you don't know that. But this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job, tow this guy's truck, without asking you if I can. And that dude over there, and he points to the, the driver, is supposed to be able to stay with his car and not be ripped off. Things ain't the way they're supposed to be. And there is a part of our world that is truly glorious, as, as Craig and Megan have already indicated, especially at this time of year with the cherry blossoms out and the, the climate getting warmer. But there is also a part of our world that ain't the way it's supposed to be. And today on this first Sunday after Easter, we're beginning a new sermon series from the book of Colossians in the Bible. And one of the main messages of Colossians is that Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. He is Lord of creation. Another related message from the book of Colossians is that things ain't the way they're supposed to be because sin has compromised our planet. But thanks to Jesus's death on the cross, which we acknowledged on Good Friday, the power of sin and evil has been broken. The path to reconciliation with God has opened up. And as God reconciles us and the world to himself, he makes all things new. 
And so one of the messages of the book of Colossians is that Jesus is the Lord of creation. But another message is Jesus is also the Lord of new creation. And since this is the first message in the series, I'm going to give you a little bit of background as to where Paul writes this letter from and why he writes it. Paul pens this letter, now known as the book of Colossians, from a prison cell in Rome where he is being held because of his proclamation that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. The letter is sent to the church, the followers of Jesus in Colossae, which is a small town in the Roman Empire. And in this town of Colossae, there were as many gods as there were people, quote gods, as there were people. And if something went wrong for the people in Colossae, if they experienced a famine, an earthquake, a flood, they would have assumed that someone had not made the proper sacrifices to the gods. And in Colossae, in this small town, there was no such thing as a, quote, private life. Everyone was in everyone else's business. And so if you are a follower of Christ in Colossae, and you're not making sacrifices to the gods, or you're not showing up at the festival to honor Caesar, your neighbors will notice. And if things go wrong, they know exactly who to blame. The church father Tertullian said that when things went wrong in the Roman Empire, the shout went out, throw the Christians to the lions. And so the followers of Jesus in Colossae are losing heart in some respects. They're tempted to give up their faith in Jesus, as we might be under those circumstances. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage them to stay faithful in their pursuit of Christ. And after opening with a greeting and a brief prayer, he offers a poem. It's a very important poem. We know it's a poem because if we read it in the original Greek, it has this rhythmic structure to it, this, this, this rhythmic melody to it that's lost in the English translation. Because it's a poem, Paul can also pack in dense, important ideas. And so in English, it's going to seem rather dense. Now, when I mention it's a poem, it doesn't mean for that reason that it's any less true or not true. It is completely true, inspired by God. So listen to the poem from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Son, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that your word 
would be our guide today, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and your glory through Christ in us, our purpose. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. In this message, we're going to look at the poem and we're going to see how God affirms through Paul that Jesus is Lord of creation and Jesus also is Lord of new creation as he reconciles all things to himself and makes all things new. Now, when people heard this poem being publicly read at the church in Colossae, it would have sounded subversive. You're probably familiar with the word gospel, and you likely associate the word gospel with Jesus, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, or the good news about Jesus. But the word gospel existed before Jesus was born. In the year 6 BC, or from the year 6 BC, there was an inscription on the side of a government building in the Roman Empire with the title, The Gospel Concerning Caesar Augustus. It described the good news of his birth, and on the inscription were the words, The Most Divine Caesar, the beginning of life and vitality, Caesar has set all things in order, having become God. And there were images of Caesar everywhere in the empire. Statues of Caesar all over the place. His images on the coins, on the gladiatorial games, um, logos. Uh, his symbol, his image was also on the paintings of Rome. And so when the words are read that Jesus Christ is Lord and creator and God, those words in Colossae, read publicly, would have sounded treasonous, revolutionary. In 1938, the Nazis invaded Austria, took over the country, and not long thereafter, declared that all public gatherings would be banned. Well, that very evening, after that declaration was made, the cardinal in it, sir, the, the cardinal who served out of St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna declared a public prayer meeting anyway. And as he made his way to the stage, he stood still for a moment, and these were his first words. We have but one Fuhrer, and his name is Jesus. You can imagine the tension of that statement when almost everyone in their world at that time was now raising their right hand and saying, I'll, Fuhrer, I'll, Hitler. And Cardinal Insner is saying, we have but one Fuhrer. We have but one supreme leader. And his name is Jesus. Risking his life by saying that. Risking the safety of the people in the room. And there was great tension. And when the words from Paul are read at the church in Colossae, 
that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is creator and God, there is great tension. Now, we're not under pressure today to raise our right hand and say, I'll Hitler or I'll Caesar. But whether we know it or not, living in a capitalist consumer society, we are under pressure to, in a manner of speaking, bow down before the gods of money and worldly success. We are under pressure to define our lives by the money we pursue, the money we have, our consumption, our purchases. We are under pressure to assess our value by our achievements, by our role, our reputation, and in a place like BC to measure our lives by our recreational and pleasurable experiences. And God would say to us through Paul across the ages, through his letter to the church at Colossae, there is but one, there is but one who deserves our complete devotion commitment and allegiance, and his name is Jesus. And he alone deserves our utter devotion and commitment because Jesus is God. Paul writes in verse 15, the Son, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. Nobody had ever seen God. But according to the text, according to verse 19, God chose to come to us in Jesus. And in him is all the fullness of the deity, of the divinity of God in bodily form. I get this image, this illustration from the great theologian Tom Wright. He says, if you are in a room, you cannot see the person in the room next to you because there is a wall in between you. Unless there is a mirror in the hallway. And if there's a mirror, you can look through your door and you can see the mirror image of the person in the room next to you. And when we look at Jesus Christ we see a mirror image of God. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. A woman who was not religious began reading the Gospels about Jesus at the encouragement of her friend who I'm acquainted with. And after some time of, of reading, this woman said, I thought I was going to be or feel judged by Jesus. But as I read about his life in the Gospels, and as I see him interacting with people, I can't get over how beautiful he is. And then she said, and when you are in the presence of Jesus, if you are a sinner, and you know you are a sinner, you are not far from the kingdom of God. If you want to see who God is, look to Jesus. Look at his beauty. 
Because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Paul is saying in a world where Caesar is regarded as Lord and God. No, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator of all things. And as such, he holds the world together. In verse 17, we read that he that is Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. A Christian scientist named John Polkinghorne says, imagine that you are in front of a universe-making machine and there are hundreds of knobs with different settings for the universe. So for example, there is one knob that will determine the setting for gravity in the universe. And it's your responsibility to pick all the settings so that life is possible on earth and will be sustained. He points out there's another knob that will determine the setting for something called electromagnetism, which is the force that keeps things and keeps you held together. Uh, There is another knob that will determine the speed at which the universe is made, the speed of creation. That's got to be set exactly right for there to be life on earth. There's another knob, another setting that will determine how large the the size of the cosmos, the size of the universe will be. And the scientist Polkinghorne points out that unless each of these hundreds of knobs are set precisely right, life on earth will not be possible. Life will just fly apart. It will not be sustainable. And then he points out that against all odds, against all the odds, we experience life on earth because all the settings on our planet are set to support. They're finely tuned to support life on earth against all odds. And he says, you could regard this as simply coincidence, chance, or good luck, But that belief would be an act of faith. Or you could believe that some greater being, a creator, some intelligent being holds the universe together. And of course, that also would be an act of faith. The Apostle Paul chooses the latter option. He believes that the universe is held together by the creator, by Jesus Christ. And if you're here today or watching online and you feel like you are going through some kind of adverse situation, maybe you're feeling anxiety, you're experiencing affliction, you're going through a period where you are facing some kind of infirmity, know that the Jesus who holds the world together can hold your life together as well. He can. So entrust your life to Jesus, the one who created you and created all things and holds all things together, including your life. So the Apostle Paul in our poem affirms that Jesus is Lord of creation He also affirms that Jesus is Lord of new creation. In the text, we read in verse 18, 
that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And when Jesus is described as the head of the body and Paul speaks of the church, the words body and church refer to something scripture describes as the new humanity, the new people of God, or the new creation. This new creation, this new humanity, the church, is made possible because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sins, which opened the way for us to experience the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with our maker. In verses 19 and 20, the apostle Paul writes, for God was pleased through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul is saying here, no, it's not Caesar that's holding everything in order. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who is holding all things in order. It's Jesus who is restoring and reconciling all things to himself. What does the phrase mean that Jesus reconciles all things to himself? Well, part of what it means is that Jesus can reconcile us to God, the most important kind of reconciliation possible. Again, as we've said, through his sacrificial death on our behalf on the cross. And the Bible says that when we really come to know God through Jesus, we become new creations. Therefore, Paul writes, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. If you're reconciled to God, you are a new creation. All things being reconciled to God also means that we can experience new kinds of relationships that weren't possible before. The Apostle Paul's First century Roman Empire world was one that was deeply divided along the lines of race, ethnicity, and social background. But he writes in Colossians 3.11, here, that is in Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, meaning an utterly uncivilized person, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Through Christ, we can be in relationship, as Paul writes, with people who have very different backgrounds than our own. We can know new kinds of relationships through Christ. We can be made new. We're in new kinds of connections with others, thanks to Christ. And then finally, insofar as this message is concerned, all things being reconciled to Christ includes our good earth as well. And because it's Good Seed Sunday, as Megan and Craig and others have mentioned, across Canada, let me just pause here for a moment and reflect on what it means for the earth to be reconciled through us to Christ. As Craig mentioned in his earlier prayer, we live in a glorious part of the world. As he was riding the bus to, to church today, he noticed the cherry blossoms the different shades of green, uh, the, the snow-capped mountains. Uh, we live in a breathtaking part of the world. And if you're watching online from some other part of the world, we hope you can visit Vancouver at some point. But we also know that we also live in a part of the world, as we've seen this past year, that 
ain't always the way it's supposed to be. And so as we remember, last summer here in BC, we experienced extreme levels of heat. Nearly 600 people died because of the heat. And according to climate researchers, those high levels of heat would have been virtually impossible without climate change. In November, our province was ravished by floods, devastating floods, that resulted in more than $7.5 billion worth of damage, making it the most expensive climate-related disaster in Canadian history. Scientists tell us that unless we drastically reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases, the temperatures in our planet will continue to gradually rise. Expanding desert areas, melting ice caps, causing the levels of the oceans to rise, and that in turn will create even more extreme weather patterns such as hurricanes and typhoons. The extreme weather will in turn disrupt agricultural production. And as people like Rita know, cause flooding and cause multitudes of people, multitudes more people to leave their homes in search of new ones as refugees. In a gathering like this, we want to be, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, good stewards, faithful stewards of our lives before God. And one of the ways that we can act as faithful stewards of our lives before God is by caring for his good earth. And we can do that in, in ways that are seemingly rather simple and everyday along with, with big ways as well. So for example, one of the ways that we can care for our earth is by being mindful about our eating choices. Now, I don't want to present myself as a paragon of virtue here because I know that I have been complicit in negatively impacting the earth. But I seek to be prayerfully mindful about my eating choices. So for example, I generally speaking prefer not to eat highly processed, heavily laden with chemicals kind of food. Um, they're convenient, but they also tend to be expensive to make, and that process tends to be more impactful on the earth. Uh, some of us here have vegetable gardens. Uh, we've got a little vegetable garden in our backyard yesterday. Our little family was working in our backyard, and my wife was planting seeds for lettuce and radishes and kale, hoping that the weather gets a little bit warmer so that those seeds will do well. If you grow some of your own food, some of your own vegetables, you know where your food comes from and you don't need a truck to deliver the vegetables from your backyard or your porch to your kitchen. So less impact on the earth. There's someone in our faith community who was recently sharing with me that he's been teaching his five-year-old daughter to care for the earth. And so he's uh, been explaining things like, uh, we not only recycle paper and plastic, but we also recycle soft plastics and, and styrofoam. And he said, I, I, I took her to the zero waste center 
just off of Marine Drive in South Vancouver. And as we were going there to recycle some things, we saw what looked like a mountain of garbage. I pointed to the mountain of garbage and I said, the reason we're recycling these things is to reduce the amount of garbage on that, that big hill. They get to the depot. It's the five-year-old girl who is handing over the styrofoam, the, the, the bubble wrap, and so on. And then the dad leans over and gives her a high five and says, thank you for caring for the earth. And the five-year-old girl says, yeah, dad, we're going to stop Garbage Mountain from getting any bigger. We're going to stop Garbage Mountain from getting any bigger. And when we care for the earth through our everyday acts, whether we know it or not, we support the hands of Jesus that holds the world together. We become the hands of Jesus that holds the world together as we help to renew the earth. So Jesus is the Lord of creation. And if your life feels like it's facing down adversity, or if you're feeling anxiety or affliction, place your life, your existence in his hands, and he will be able to hold it together. And remember that Jesus is also the Lord of new creation. And so offer up your lives to him as instruments of his. And as you do that, you will become part of the pilot project that is bringing renewal to the earth. Christ will use you to help make all things new. Let's pray together. Perhaps you feel like there is something in your life that is flying apart or out of control or something in the life of someone else that is really difficult. Right now, to the Christ who is here, you can pray, God, I place myself or this situation into your hands and he will hold it together. And on the heels of that prayer, you can also say to Jesus, Jesus, I offer myself to you as your instrument. Use my life, use my actions as part of the pilot project that is bringing renewal to the world. Use me in your work to make all things new. And may it be so for us, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.